Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Susan Garlinger. Good morning. My name is Susan. I get to serve as the Bible study pastor here. We are getting to continue our study in Colossians this morning. We've been learning about the all-sufficiency of Christ. And we've been learning about the completeness we can have in him. This weekend, it's as if we turn a bit of a corner and we begin to look at the inner transformation of the believer in Christ. And as we get into our time this morning, I just would ask that you would pray with me. Spirit of the living God, we invite you to fall fresh. Will you speak to each one of us? Will you let us know that we're hearing from you? Whatever, whatever the need, whatever it would be you would like to say, help us to have ears to listen. We ask that you'll allow our time together this morning to help make us a church ready for you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. This year, the year 2016, marks the 20th anniversary of the first date that I had with my husband. It's so hard for me to believe that it's been 20 years. It feels like it was yesterday. I didn't know Nick very well. I knew that he loved Jesus. I knew that he loved the Cincinnati Reds. And so you can imagine, with that combination in a man, I had high hopes I don't want to sound braggy, but I had myself looking good that night. Nick, not so much. Look at this picture with me. Okay, that's not Nick, that's Larry Bird. I think that picture is from 1980-something. And on that first date with Nick in 1996, he wore shorts just about like that. He also wore this old ratty sweatshirt with paint splatters on it. And it turns out, when he went home that night, one of his roommates looked at him and said, where have you been? And Nick said, well, I just took Susan on a date. And his roommate said, dude, what are you thinking? And way back then, Nick still had that southern drawl. And he said, I need to know a woman loves me for who I am. And his roommate looked right at him and said, no, 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 you don't. (laughs) You want a woman who will love you for who you will become. And as we get into Colossians chapter 3 today, that's pretty much what Paul is saying to the brothers and the sisters in the church. Don't keep wearing the clothes that scream out where you've been. Put on the new clothes, the new nature, that have everything to do with where you're going. The scriptures will be on the screen behind me. You can also read along in your own Bible. It's page 1872 in the Bible that's there in the rack in front of you. We'll begin in Colossians chapter 3 verse 1. 
Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Paul urges that sights be set on heaven. He urges that thinking be aligned with heavenly realities. Let's take just a couple minutes to look at some of those realities from Revelation 4. And I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones. And the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. The thing we know for certain, Jesus Christ is on the throne of heaven. That's reality. He's risen. He's glorified. He reigns over all that is. Another package of realities of heaven from Revelation 21. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Not even a hint or an inkling of separation will remain between God and his people. No tears, he'll wipe them away. No death, no sorrow, no pain. This earthly life for us as believers is in the past. Our real lives are wrapped up with Christ in God. We're safe and secure with him. Paul tells these people, he tells us, it's not if, but when. When Jesus Christ is revealed to the world, believers will share in all his glory. For God's people, real life is eternity. Real life is wrapped up in heaven. This has always been true for God's people. The Old Testament tells us the story of Abraham. He walked into the mystery, into the fog with God. By faith he did that because he believed the heavenly realities outweighed the earthly ones. The Bible tells us that Abraham lived as a stranger. He lived as a foreigner on the earth because he believed his true home was an eternal one that would be designed and built by God. Then Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, speaking to his followers, pointed them to the realities of heaven. Look with this, Matthew 6. Don't store up treasures here on earth, Jesus told them, where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. When a person's heart is fully invested in heaven, Nothing can destroy the treasures. We can plan 
We can prepare. We can make decisions based on these heavenly realities. Paul knew as he pointed us to think of heavenly things, only the heavenly motivated person would receive what he wrote next. Let's move on in verse 5. Paul writes, So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Paul says to put sin to death. He says, kill off the sinful things lurking in you. This word lurking, maybe one picture of it is in a crime drama, the, the villain slinking around in a dark alley waiting to pounce. Or maybe if you're familiar with that movie, A Christmas Story, do you remember when Grover Dill and Scott Farkas just wait there until Ralphie and Randy and all the sweet little boys come by and then they pounce? Lurking. These things slink around inside a person. And Paul says, kill them. Put them to death. It's not a fun list that he includes here, but we need to look at it and think about it for a couple of minutes so that we will be more able to defend against the lurking. The first one on the list, sexual immorality. This comes from the same root word that gives us the word pornography. This is sexual sin outside of biblical marriage. Impurity is a wider perversion. It's when the person's character becomes contaminated because of the widespread immorality. Lust, this is where the urges are just no longer controllable. The person is driven by them. Evil desires, or another way of saying that, illicit cravings. This is where you or I dwell on things that we just should not be dwelling on. The temptation comes, and instead of fighting it off, we invite it in. We serve it tea. We sit a spell. We entertain. We enjoy. But Paul says, no, no. The final one in this list is greed or coveting. This is where I want what I want when I want it. That thing becomes the object of my worship. I'm no longer bowing to God. I'm bowing to something or some experience that I crave. We're told to put these things to death, these sins that lurk. The British theologian N.T. Wright commented on Colossians 3, and look with me at what he said. 
To put something to death, you must cut off its lines of supply. It is futile and self-deceiving to bemoan one's inability to resist the last stage of a temptation when earlier stages have gone by unnoticed or even eagerly welcomed. Every Christian has the responsibility before God to investigate the lifelines of whatever sins are defeating him personally and to cut them off without pity. Better that than have them eventually destroy him. Verse 6 tells us that because of these sins, the wrath or the anger of God is coming. Now think with me for a minute. Is it not kind of God to warn us? Is it not gracious and merciful of him to warn us ahead of time to kill these things off? In verse 8, there's a second list. And in some respects, maybe we don't think of these as lurkers. Maybe we have accepted these or maybe we've become more comfortable with them. Nonetheless, we're told to get rid of them. The language that Paul uses there is like taking off and getting rid of a dirty shirt. He doesn't say launder it and then put it back on. He says, get rid of it. The first one in this list is anger. It's a smoldering hatred. Rage, that's the outburst that comes as a result of the smoldering Malicious behavior, this is where you or I intentionally do something to hurt someone. Slander, we speak evil against someone. Dirty language, this is shameful or abrasive speech. And then Paul adds, don't lie to each other. These things no longer fit you when you belong to Jesus. When Jesus was preparing his disciples for the time that he would go away from them, he knew they would need outside help to be able to ferret out their sin and get rid of it. Look with me at what he told his disciples. In John 16, Jesus is speaking to his friends. It is best for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The advocate is the Holy Spirit. And Jesus knew we would need him to convict us of sin because otherwise we wouldn't be aware of our sin. Holy Spirit will teach us. Holy Spirit will empower us to put the sin to death. Well, it's no accident that Jesus gave this instruction to his disciples, a group of believers. They're in community together because Holy Spirit so often works when people are in community. Holy Spirit uses one person in another person's life. Let me try to explain this a bit. When, when our kids were really little, all three of them, under the age of two, Nick got up and went to work one day, and he was gone a long, long time. The three babies and I were there in the house. No 
contact with the outside world. Nick came home at the end of the day. He walked in the door. He leaned in to hug me, and then he stopped, and he went, and, and very kindly, he said to me, darling, you smell. Well, what had happened that I forgot, hours earlier, I was spit up on. But trapped inside, my kids and I, buried in the same stink, none of us even noticed. But when Nick came in from the outside, he could lovingly say, why don't you go put on a clean shirt? When you and I do nothing but hang out with people who accept our sin, or when you and I hang out with people that are mired in the same sin we're mired in, it's not very likely that we'll ferret that sin out and deal with it. But when we allow someone to come in from the outside like Nick did that day, they get close. They can see things we don't see. They can smell things we don't smell. And they can help us get rid of that sin. Paul said to take the sin off like a dirty shirt. When Jesus explained that we'd need help from the outside, and when Paul said to put it to death, get rid of it, they were speaking to communities of believers. Just by the mercy of God, you and I are able to hear these things as a community of believers. And we can increasingly become that safe place where those lurking sins can be put to death. I used to work with a woman and she would often speak of this ministry of the mirror. She said it's where one person reflects reality to another. It was metaphorical, of course, but her point was it's like holding up a mirror so that the person can see the situation for what it is. Quite honestly, this is speaking the truth in love. When we see our situation for what it really is, we are far more likely to see the sin and deal with it appropriately. In a couple of minutes, I'll ask you some questions about your sin, about how the ministry of the mirror might help you. But I think it's only fair that I first share a bit about how the ministry of the mirror helps me with my sin. The first time I remember someone lovingly reflecting reality to me was when one of my older sisters gently confronted my poor dating practices. She helped me see that I was immature, and she stuck with me and assured me along the way that God would grow me. I also remember years ago here when I was pastor of women's ministries. I was at home, and my husband and I got into an argument, and I was getting pretty snippy with him. Nick spoke the truth in love to me, and he said, I don't think you would ever treat a woman at church the way you're treating me. I had to take a good, long look. And the mirror didn't lie. 
I, I can't stress enough the benefit of community. The benefit of being with other pilgrims on the journey. I've been in a small group here for several years with a, a group of trusted women. And every now and then I'll hand one of them the mirror and say, help me see the sin in my attitude. Help me see the sin in my thinking. And even more recently, not even two weeks ago, I was at home dealing with a situation. Um, one of my kids had diarrhea and it was really messy, round after round, when it hit me, so I got a dosing cup, and I dumped a bunch of that green diarrhea medicine into it, and I went off through the house, chasing down that kid, grabbed the child, and began to try to cram the medicine down the throat, hoping for relief. Well, we devolved into what probably looked like a, a rugby scrum or something similar. The kid got away, the green medicine splattered all over. And in that moment, this string of words flew out of my mouth. Words that fit neatly into what Paul called dirty language. I knew I was wrong. It hurts when you realize you haven't gotten rid of everything you need to get rid of. I knew I would need to go through the house, find everybody one by one and apologize. I first went into the kitchen. Nick was in there and I said, I am so sorry. Will you forgive me? And then I said, I want there to be no allowance for stuff like that to come out of me. And Nick said, yes, of course, I'll forgive you. But then he went the extra mile. He grabbed a wipe and he began to help clean off that green medicine and the other things that were on me. And I can only tell you that in that time of failure, to have someone stick with me and help with the mess was an amazing thing to experience. The ministry of the mirror can be humbling, but God can use it to change us. How might the ministry of the mirror help you? How might a reflection of your reality identify sin and then you begin to battle to get it behind you? Have you positioned yourself with others who can get close enough to speak truth to you? Another question, are you gracious enough, humble enough that someone might come to you and say, hey, tell me what you see. Are you prepared to help a brother or sister in that way? Paul was so clear that the old nature has to go. But he casts a beautiful vision, just an initial glimpse of the new nature for us. Let's pick up in Colossians 3 verse 10. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. 
Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. As you and I, as anyone, comes into an increasing knowledge of and a deepening relationship with Jesus, we'll be made new. We'll become more like him. Relationship with Jesus can make anyone new. And as we're made new in Christ, we can enter into new relationship with each other. That is part of that new nature. Verse 11 says it does not matter where you come from. That's not the deal. Doesn't matter what you used to think of other types of people. Doesn't matter what other people thought of you. Nationality doesn't matter. Religious distinction doesn't matter. Cultural distinctions don't matter. Socioeconomic things do not matter. In the body of Christ, Jesus himself is all that matters, and he lives in every believer. When you and I come together as God intends, our relationships with Jesus will grow, our relationships with each other will grow, and it'll all become stronger and stronger together. This passage began with Paul urging us to get our hearts and our minds focused on eternity. And in many respects, it ends the same way. For when you and I come together and embrace and receive each other in the body of Christ without prejudice, we're dress rehearsing for heaven. We're dress rehearsing for eternity. Want us to think through three questions. Maybe one in particular will be what the Spirit nudges you about. Let Take a look at these with me. What is one thing you might do this week to set your sights on the realities of heaven? Maybe you'll just sit down with your Bible and search the scriptures to learn more about heaven. Maybe you'll connect with a friend and for just 15 or 20 minutes just encourage each other in the realities of heaven. Or maybe you'll sit with the Spirit and ask Him to quicken your heart for these things. Next question. What is one thing you might do this week to more actively put the old nature behind you? Do you need to say yes to Jesus? Maybe you'll take a step toward deeper involvement of some sort. Maybe you'll allow someone to hold the mirror up and reflect reality to you. Maybe you'll invite the Spirit's conviction that was graciously promised by Jesus. Third question. What is one thing you might do this week to more authentically live out your new nature? Is there something you've been withholding from Jesus that you need to give to him? Is there a prejudice that you need to let go of? Is there someone you need to reach out in friendship to? If you pay close attention, is the spirit nudging you in some way? Imagine with me, close your eyes if you have to, but imagine with me, imagine our city, imagine our region, if you and I, if all of us put the old nature behind us.
Well, let me assure you, a day is coming. There's a day coming, a glorious day. The book of Revelation tells us that people from every nation and tribe and language will all be gathered around the throne worshiping Jesus. Everyone dressed in a white robe. And as you and I learn what not to wear, as we let go of the old nature, and as we let him dress us in the new, we'll be dressed in robes that are made white by the blood of the lamb. And those are clothes that will never go out of style. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for sending Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, thank you for coming. Father God, thank you for letting our lives be wrapped up with Jesus in you. How do we live? How do we move? We need you to show us the way so we wait on you amen thank you for joining us on the salem alliance church podcast we are a community of believers located in downtown salem oregon and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with god if you have a request that we could pray for please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org if you'd like more information about this podcast or other resources please visit us at salemalliance.org.